everyone. Welcome back to the Minute Women podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. And we are just full of panic this week. All of the panic. All of the panic. <laughs> Our personal lives yeah. shattering, devastated. <laughs> but also, we are so short for time in recording this episode. So short for time. This is last minute. This episode is going to come out tomorrow. So hopefully our amazing producer, Mark, can do some wonderful magic and make yeah. us sound great. Also, firstly... I just want to say <laughs> to get the banter. Okay, we need a strict schedule. Banter, go. <laughs> that we are in the presence of greatness now. Every we time are. we come into the studio, because on the wall behind me, I wish I was looking at her, but on the wall behind me is this art pop deco portrait Beautiful. of my queen Sigourney Weaver, and she has like the Ooh. like the Jesus halo yeah. behind her head. She is also accompanied by a Will Smith. Um, with a Jesus halo as well. With a Jesus halo as very well. Nice. I do think Sigourney needs to be positioned just slightly higher, but that's okay. Slightly above Will Smith. Slightly, because she is. Because she is. Just in life. She looks beautiful in that picture, God, too. I love that one. I don't know what it's specifically pulled from, like what role it's specifically pulled from, but it, it looks great. I She's think it's hot. probably alien. Yeah? It looks like it's from Mark alien. is nodding. It's alien. Yeah, which is just a stellar trio. I think there's only three. I think there's, there's only she's only in three. She's only in three. Yeah, yeah. three alien movies. But she got out. Fantastic. The Finding Dory movie, which came out a couple of years ago, oh, I went yes. to see with my mom and my younger sister. And uh, Sigourney Weaver is just the voice in that movie uh, at the aquarium. And she's yeah. like, "Hi, this is Sigourney Weaver," and like then gives you instructions. <laughs> and every time my mom and I would just lose it because we like loved her in Alien and in Ghostbusters and. Uh, uh, so funny. She was in Holes. That's, yes, that's yes, how yes. I know her from my childhood. She yep. was like the badass, like she hard bitch in that movie. Yeah. She was like the bad guy. But that's a you know phenomenal movie. She's great in it. So I don't think we're talking about Holes or Aliens or no. anything else involving Sigourney Weaver. No, those so, are not our tie-ins. Uh, what are we talking about today? <laughs> well, segue for time. Oh, we are going to talk about the inventor of standard time and time oh. zones. Sandor Fleming. My boy, Sir Sanford Fleming. Yeah. Love that guy. Also said his name wrong right off the top. But you know what? That's fine. We're just going to call him Fleming this whole time. Just (laughs) Fleming. Yeah. Love that guy. It's a cool guy. There's a park here for him in Halifax. There is because he lived here for a while. Yeah. That's super cool. I did a heritage fair project in the seventh grade on the (laughs) railway. And so Uh, I talked a lot about Mr. Fleming, you know, because Uh, that's what surprised me going through it is. The Heritage Minute, I mean, it shows him working on the railway, but they're like, and you get knighted for inventing standard time or the system of standard time we wind up using. But he's really more of a train guy. Yeah. Like, if there was anyone who loved trains more than Sir John A. MacDonald, it was Sanford Fleming. (laughs) It was Sanford Fleming. He's like, let me build all those trains. (laughs) Love trains. It's also just a lot of, like, rich white guys fighting in this episode. Oh, yeah. So hopefully you can relate to their privilege. (laughs) Welcome to the building of the railroad. (laughs) Welcome to the building of the railroad. Colonialism? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. (laughs) We on the Minute Women podcast do not stand with colonialism, but Uh, we're going to have to talk about it a lot today. But Sir Sanford Fleming sure did. Sanford Fleming (laughs) at least didn't care. No, he really benefited from (laughs) colonialism. Really benefited from the whole process of conquering peoples moving westward. But anyways, so we're going to talk about his life and his accomplishments and everything that leads to him designing a system of time because it was really like trains first and I will change the way the world thinks about time just so trains work a little bit better. Okay. (laughs) 
1827, Sanford Fleming is born in Curlcaldy, Fife, Scotland, to Andrew and Elizabeth Fleming. His oh. father was a carpenter, and Fleming had four brothers and four sisters. Okay. Big family. Sanford began his education in Kennaway and Kirkcaldy until at the age of 14, he began studying under Scottish engineer and surveyor John Sang as an apprentice. Hmm. Pretty young. Yeah. Just going on. But <laughs> a boy. But a child. <laughs> it's like, well, father, I'm 14. It's time I become a man. <laughs> I think about what I was doing when I was 14. I was in, I was in the jazz band Oh, at Malcolm Monroe Junior High. <laughs> I, uh, I was also in the jazz band, jazz Ooh. and concert band, living my very best life. <laughs> um, when you say that, though, when you're like, when he goes to his dad, especially in like that time, and he's like, it's time I become a man. I just imagine dad being like, all right, let's go down to the brothel. <laughs> Or he's like, it's about time. (laughs) I lost my virginity at 10 (laughs) to a sheep. It's Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) I went home over the weekend for Thanksgiving. We just had Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, my family is huge proponents of Catan. And we have this bit in our family where the first time my youngest brother learned Catan, he just could only collect wheat for some reason in the whole game. And we were trying to tell him what to do. And he's like, I don't know what I need. It's just wheat. Yeah, It's also become a bit every time I play Catan now. And then I have to explain to people, oh, this is a story about Grace's little brother. Like, And I recently met Colm, but before that, I was like, this is Grace's little brother I've never met. I've never met, but here this is, is just his a funny infamous bit. words. <laughs> this time around, though, it was my other younger brother and Sheep. And he would just randomly like look at you and start whispering and be like, hey, I think I have what you want. And he'd just show you his hand, and it'd be like six sheep. <laughs> no uh, leverage in that hand. Uh, you know what Catan needed? They need trains. Oh, yeah. How yeah. is there not a Catan train crossover? Well, it's because there's... Um, They're all about boats. But it's because there's that other game. Ticket to Ride? Ticket to Ride. I love yeah, Ticket to Ride. I also love Ticket to Ride. It's a great game. But yeah. they're not like... Ticket to Ride's not so much about collecting resources. I guess it kind of is. You have to collect mm, colors. You're just, I don't know. You just have to make a lot of trains. Yeah. Trains. So in 1845, Fleming, after four years of serving as an apprentice, decides that he's going to leave Scotland. He's going to oh. emigrate to Canada with his older brother, David. Okay. So their route takes them through many cities of the Canadian colonies because it's pre-Confederation. Right. Uh, they go to Quebec City, Montreal, Kingston, before they wind up settling in Peterborough with their cousins two years later in 1847. Okay. <laughs> it takes two years to get to Peterborough. Jeez Louise. <laughs> it's just Peterborough. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. It's going to be a really quick trip. We'll see you probably by Christmas. Oh, of this year? No. no. <laughs> two years from now, Two years silly. at least. <laughs> Could be three. <laughs> Could be three. In Peterborough, uh, Fleming secured employment with surveyor Richard Birdsall. He later contracted with John Dennis, a surveyor in Weston, which is now Toronto, in order to recertify as required under Canadian law because his license that he obtained in Scotland was not valid in the huh. new colonies. To generate income before his certification as a surveyor in 1849, Fleming prepared maps of Peterborough, Hamilton, Coburg, and Toronto. The last, made jointly with Dennis, was published by Hugh Scobie's firm in 1851, the same year that the highly talented Fleming designed Canada's first postage stamp, which would do much to publicize the beaver as a distinctly Canadian emblem. God, he loves trains and beavers. (laughs) (laughs) 
What a dude. <laughs> yeah. That's- and beavers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Don't worry, guys. The joke wasn't lost on me. <laughs> Do you know that there's a club called the Beaver Club? It's like a gentleman's club in Quebec. No. <laughs> I know someone who was in it. Oh, God. And they, like, it's a bunch of, like, cool dudes, uh. and they do, like, dude stuff, but it's called the Beaver Club. Mm. <laughs> just like beavers when you're little. Yes. Just for grown-ups. But just for grown-ups. <laughs> That's their slogan. <laughs> Beaver Club. It's just for grown-ups. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. So his design is called the Three Penny Beaver because the postage stamp sold for three pennies. And oh. it's just like a red stamp with a beaver on it. But that was like the first time or one of the first times the beaver was used as like a Canadian icon. Cool. So just another thing that Fleming is dabbling in is postage He's stamp design. <laughs> He's a dabbler for sure. <laughs> Throughout this time, he was fully employed as a surveyor, mostly for the Grand Trunk Railway. His work for them eventually gained him the position of Chief Engineer of the Northern Railway of Canada in 1855, where he advocated for the construction of iron bridges instead of wood bridges for safety reasons. That's brilliant. Yeah. He's like, what if we didn't make them out of something that rots? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try not that. <laughs> How about anything but? <laughs> Fleming also served in the 10th Battalion Volunteer Rifles of Canada, which later became known as the Royal Regiment of Canada, and obtained the rank of captain on January 1st, 1862. He retired from the militia in 1865. I feel like this guy is like Forrest Gump in the fact that I feel like he just walks into situations and they're just like, <laughs> here you go, new job. And he's just like, well, 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 okay. Like he was Jenny. just doodling, he just doodling a beaver and they're like, it's a postage stamp. And he's like, all right. That's why it took so long to get from Scotland because he was just yeah. running. He's just, he's just scratching his head and he's like, wood's kind of dumb to make a bridge out of. They're like, you're a genius. Am like, I? <laughs> It's liter- It's Forrest Gump at the end of his like running phase where he has the yeah. massive beard. Uh-huh. That's Sanford Fleming because the dude had like the biggest Plot beard in twist. the world. Forrest Gump is Sir Sanford Fleming. <gasps> oh my god! Time travel. Whoa! <laughs> We're putting all the dots together. Also, today. Forrest Gump wasn't real. Um, really? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I digress. I digress. So back in June of 1849, Fleming had participated with Kivas Tully, Frederick William Cumberland, and others in the founding in Toronto of the Canadian Institute, an early professional society of architects, surveyors, and engineers. When it failed to become a professional organization, he helped convert it into a broad-based scientific society. He served it in various capacities until he left Toronto in 1864. In 1879, he would be reinstated as a member by Daniel Wilson, who, spoiler alert, became a staunch ally in advocating standard time. Fleming was also the prime mover in 1852 behind the Institute's Canadian Journal. So this organization goes a long way into promoting his scientific discoveries and his ideas. Does this organization still exist? Yes, I believe the Canadian Institute does still exist. It's like a scientific society. And his a big theme of this episode is that it's not always the best idea, not to say that his ideas are bad, 
but the best idea isn't necessarily the one that becomes the rule. It's who has the best advocates. So if you have the most vocal proponents on your side, your truth becomes the truth for everybody. Mm. Um, And that's a big part of science. And being able to advocate for yourself or have powerful people on your side advocating for your discoveries leads to lots of money for you. It's key. (laughs) The Canadian (laughs) Institute is going to be important in his life. Yeah. As soon as he had arrived in Peterborough in 1845, Fleming became friendly with the family of his future wife, the Halls, and he was instantly attracted to Jenny Hall. However, it was not until a sleigh accident almost 10 years later that the young people's love for each other was revealed. Whoa. Literally the origin of, like, Jingle Bells. I was just (laughs) thinking that. I was like, he took her for a ride in a one-horse open sleigh. sleigh. And then they crashed, and he was like, hey. I was going to say, why was it revealed? Did the, like, sleigh crash happen, and then everybody goes over, and they're just, like, naked, and it's like, oh, whoops. Oh, the sleigh crashed. (laughs) I didn't know. know. And then he he just puts his hands down. Oh. (laughs) I did not know. I did not know. For all know. of you listening, Grace and I both put our hands up, and then I <laughs> pretended to cover my fake genitalia. Because <laughs> she doesn't have genitalia. They're, they're fake. She's just a Barbie doll. Uh, it's all plastic. Uh, it's fantastic. <laughs> the, there's just chaos in this room right now. Chaos. We're both feeling the bubbling anticipation of, like, we have to get this done. But so we'll okay. see what kind of energy this produces in terms of narrative arc. It's okay. I think it's great. I'm enjoying this episode. Love trains. We love time. I love them. <laughs> we love sleigh rides. We sure do. Yeah. So a year after the incident, uh, in January 1855, Sanford married Jenny, Aww. and they had nine children together. Jeez Louise. Two, have di- two died young. Oh. You know, got to play the odds, have lots of kids. <laughs> you know. A family man deeply attached to his wife and children. He also decided to welcome his father, Andrew, so from Scotland, over to Canada. And Andrew brought his wife, who it's described as Andrew's wife, not his mom. Right. So I don't know if he remarried or if he was just like, fuck you, mom. Oh. Don't come. Don't. Don't come. I want dad's new wife. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And then six of their other children, they all came to Canada two years after his arrival. What a nice guy that Mr. Sanford was. And he's also good with his in-laws because the Fleming and Hall families were like super chill and like liked each other a lot. So he's a good dad and husband and son and interesting. Also founding institutes on the side. What a guy. What a guy. In 1852, Fleming became an assistant engineer under Cumberland on the Ontario, Simcoe, and Huron Union Railroad, which was later known as the Northern Railway. Thank God. Thank God. Because that is a long name. That's a name. (laughs) Which was being built from Toronto to Georgian Bay. Oh, I was in Georgian Bay. We've talked about this on a previous episode. It's beautiful. They make great gin. They do. Gin smash. They do. Uh, (laughs) And Georgian Bay is absolutely gorgeous it's like a bunch of islands um oh yeah and like the i should know what lake it is i don't know it's one of those big lakes in ontario (laughs) those big old lakes (laughs) um but uh but super beautiful it's the first time that i've ever like it was like you were in ocean except that it was shark free and low sodium you know so the relationship between the two engineers fleming and cumberland was far from smooth 
Cumberland's talents occasionally took him into activities far removed from the railway, so he's just, like, neglecting his responsibilities, and he sometimes got Fleming involved. Okay. However... a bad influence. Yeah, so fired by Cumberland in 1855, Fleming took the matter to Cumberland of Cumberland's absence and his firing to the railway's board. So Cumberland's like, I'm going to fire you. And Fleming's like, well, I'm going to tattle on you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to complain. Yeah. As a result, he winds up replacing Cumberland that nice. year on the condition that he would devote all of his time to the railway. So he's just uh, like, oops. so <laughs> we played hooky a lot. But if you let me replace Cumberland, I swear I won't do it anymore. <laughs> I'll be a really good boy. I'm going to be so much better than Cumberland. So you good. have no idea. <laughs> But then, in 1862, Cumberland, then on the Northern's board, got his revenge and made sure Fleming was ousted. In a bitter dispute between the two during the 1863 to 66 overpay. You know, (laughs) like, they're just so petty. They're just so white. They're just such males. Yeah. I mean, both men had oversized egos, but Cumberland winds up, like, winning, and he essentially ousts Fleming. Though committed to the Northern, Fleming had the board's permission to become involved in other projects. Uh-huh. So during his time working for them in 1858, the design for Toronto's Palace of Industry by Fleming and Collingwood Sherbeter. Sher- Sherbeter. Sherbeter. Is he like, is he the Swedish chef? Is he a Muppet? <laughs> I hope so. It's like, it's like, I think we have a Palace of Industry. I agree, Collingwood. <laughs> I agree. Good point. Good joke. <laughs> uh, so the two of them, then in private practice together, amply demonstrated their proficiency in new technology of iron construction. He's still on that iron oh, game. I'm loving that. It's good. <laughs> Devoted. Sturdy. <laughs> Sturdy. Rusts sometimes, but uh, doesn't rot. Nope. <laughs> Devoted from at least 1858 to the prospect of Western expansion and a transcontinental railway, in 1862, Fleming placed before the government the first thoroughly thought-out plan for building a Pacific Railway. In the winter of 1862 to 63, he promoted a railway to the Red River Settlement. Shout out to Louis Riel. Oh, yeah, that guy. (laughs) He traveled to Britain in May of 1863 to try, without success, to interest the imperial government in the project. Fleming's return coincided with the need to resolve the more pressing problem of rail links between Canada and the maritime colonies. Oh, oh, that's me. We're and featured. You. That's us. That's us in this room right now. That's our great, 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 great grandparents. Yeah, up there. Yeah, something like that. By 1863, the American Civil War had brought colonial security and the Intercolonial Railway project to the fore, and it would soon become a vital piece of selling confederation, because the maritime provinces are like, no, thank you, and they're like, but what if we build you a railway, and they're like, we'll think about it. Yeah, but that's it. (laughs) That's it. Just thinking. It's vital. In 1863, Fleming, as a result of his intense lobbying, was the unanimous choice of the colonial governments as well as the colonial office for the post of chief surveyor. Four years later, the new Dominion government appointed him engineer-in-chief of the Intercolonial Railway, a position he would hold until 1876. Hmm. A vigorous outdoorsman who enjoyed surveys, he conducted them with care and a zest for exploration. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
<laughs> Say, I love the outdoors. <laughs> he's got on his boots. He's got his little piece of paper. He goes his to Mountain Equipment guide. Co-op every week. Every weekend. Every week. Mountain Equipment Co-op at this point is like the little store in Frozen that the man owns. You know what I mean? The man who, he's like the first, it was a big deal because he was like openly gay. Um, in Frozen, they go to the... Do they, like, stumble upon yeah, his shop? Yeah, and he's okay, got, like, yeah. all the outdoor stuff. And he's very, like, Swedish. Yeah, Swedish. But I guess, like, Icelandic, because that's where they are. Yeah. Um, But he's like, I have all the things that you need. That's, like, the original mech. There you go. That's, what, that's, that's the where Sir Sanford Fleming went. <laughs> he would have loved it. He would have loved Frozen. Oh, yeah. I think Sanford Fleming would have been a huge fan of the movie Frozen. Huge advocate. He's <laughs> like, I wish I had ice powers. <laughs> I would have ruled that kingdom with a frozen fist. <laughs> An iron frozen fist. Ooh. <laughs> he organized the Intercolonial Survey Forces, approved contracts for construction, and prior to Confederation, even carried out the building himself of a line for Nova Scotia. In 1864, Fleming brought his family from Toronto to Halifax. We we here we out here. Oh, we here. We in this bitch. <laughs> this this is Halifax. I'm this breathing. Bitch? Halifax. Halifax there. <laughs> yeah. To deal more closely with the federal government, in 1869 he moved to Ottawa. Oh. <laughs> we got so excited. Classic. <laughs> where, Classic. Where he bought the former residence of Georges Edouard de Barra. Mm. Whoever that guy is. Whoever that guy is. Uh, he later renamed the home Winter Home. Oh. See, he loves Frozen. He loves it. <laughs> As his practice took him between Ottawa and the Maritimes regularly, he also bought a summer home in Halifax called The Lodge, which he used, yeah. which he first used in 1864. Cool stuff. Great. When the construction of the Intercolonial became a federal project, a board of railway commissioners was appointed in 1868 to oversee the work. In disputes with it, Fleming appealed to Ottawa, which usually decided in his favor. A prime case was the construction of bridges, several of them technically challenging. Ooh. Fleming wished to use stone and iron. Shocker. <laughs> While the commissioners, trained to turn a profit, preferred timber. Like, timber's faster and cheaper. And he's like, what about safety? Have you thought about stone and iron? <laughs> Have you thought about longevity? Look at this diagram. <laughs> I drew you a diagram in my field notes, guys. I just imagine his, like, <laughs> he does, like, demonstrations where he's like, look, wood can be chopped. Stone, it can't. <laughs> like, look what happens when fire meets wood. More fire. Fire <laughs> meets rock. Nothing. Can't do nothing about it. <laughs> and that's why the bridge should be made of stone and iron. And they all, like, stand up and clap. And he's like, thank you. Th for me? For, For me? me? I know. Thank you. I, I, de I deserve this. <laughs> also, I wish I could do a Scottish accent because uh, the dude same. has like a really thick Scottish accent from a lot of accounts oh. and he doesn't really lose it over time. So I would have loved to be able to do that for you uh, yeah. today, but I, I, I uh, can't. Just imagine that man in Outlander, the TV show. Oh, yeah. The one thing that someone told me is easy to say in a Scottish accent do is, is Scooby-Doo. 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 But I don't think it sounds Scottish. It sounds like we can't speak. Well, Scotland. I'll, Just kidding. Scooby-Doo. <laughs> no. By the end of the episode, we have to try. Again. Again. Okay. By the, we'll see. Maybe, like, the essence of Fleming will, like... Okay. <laughs> arise. And we'll be able to do an accent magically by the end of the episode. Perfect. 
So his views prevailed in terms of stone and iron versus timber, and his structures lasted, not only because of superior materials, but also because of the engineering techniques he pioneered in soil sampling and pre-stressing of piers. He's a smart boy. He's a smart boy. He knows what he's doing. Knows his stuff. It's also crazy that like he never went to school for engineering. No. He, it, this is literally something he just picked up from other people. Yeah. <laughs> it's a just apprenticing. It's yeah. just like, you're going to follow this man around for four years, and by the end of that kid, you'll be an engineer. And then he was. <laughs> and then he was. In 1874, after Alexander Mackenzie had become Minister of Public Works as well as Prime Minister, he disbanded the Railway Commission and appointed a former member, Charles Bridges. Oh. <laughs> because, duh. That guy is probably really good at making bridges. <laughs> yeah. Well, he becomes the general superintendent of government railways, he's which like requires the, a lot of bridges. He's like, the only reason they gave me this job is because my last name is Bridges, and I know nothing. I'm more of a, I'm more of a stay-on-the-land guy. I was literally a homeless guy off the street. I, I'm really scared of heights, you know? <laughs> I've never seen a train in my life. What is a, tra- a, tra- a train? Bridges, you said? That's your name? <laughs> Boy, do I have the job for you. Hired. Hired. <laughs> so a tug-of-war developed between Bridges and Fleming. I never thought Fleming would come up against Bridges. I hate that. It hurts. It hurts. <laughs> Bridges ran the existing railways and oversaw ongoing contracts, but the engineering work remained Fleming's responsibility. Fleming's final report to the Minister of Public Works, published in 1876 as the Intercolonial, is a classic statement of the complex issues surrounding and the technical methods used to accomplish one objective on Confederation. The strategy of railway building was also employed to bring British Columbia into Confederation in 1871. That place. On the promise of a transcontinental railway. That was a big deal for them. Big deal. They're like, oh, it's not just going to be intercontinental. It's going to be transcontinental. I guess it's intercolonial. Whatever. Whatever. (laughs) It's a good bit. After hesitating because of the burden of his duties on the Intercolonial, Fleming accepted that year the position of Chief Engineer of the Pacific Railway. Thinking it best to examine the possible route firsthand, he set off the next summer with a small party that included his son Frank and a friend from Halifax, the Reverend John Monroe Grant. Or George Monroe Grant. George. Yes. George, Frank, we're going out west. And Samford. It's also probably their, like, hey, you guys want to go on, like, a vacation to the West Coast? And they're like, yes, absolutely. But it's literally just him walking through the woods for the whole summer. He's like, isn't this fun, guys? Someday there'll be a railway here. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, we know, Dad. (sighs) Got it. Cool. Got it. Great. Love that. George Grant's record of the adventure, published as Ocean to Ocean in 1873, not only became a bestseller, but also helped prepare the ground for public acceptance of the projected railway. I actually own that book. What? Yeah. What? Is it good? Yeah. I've I've never read it. It's just like one of those books that (laughs) I like have. You mean it's not your favorite book? Ocean to Ocean? (laughs) Can't say it is. Can't say it is. Can't say it is. Yeah. We'll have to, we, we can do like the audio book for it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sure it's public domain by now. That sounds thrilling. That's a, that's an audio book no one is asking for. <laughs> but we will give it to them. We'll give it to the public. Yeah. Fleming subsequently organized the immense tasks of doing detailed surveys of the several proposed routes and of early construction. He himself took part in surveys when he could. 
In May 1880, however, he summarily he was summarily dismissed by Sir Charles Tupper, the Minister of Railways and Canals, Ooh, that because guy. he had become a political liability through his independent and outspoken stance on the Pacific Project. Interesting. So he's like, if the I don't care what party is coming up against me, even if it's the like government party, huh. I will be like, no, no, no. Interesting. The train must be finished. We all had to do, I, I remember this, we all had to do like a one page like word document on a prime minister when I was in the third grade and it was like, it was like, you know, size 20 font, double spaced, <laughs> like one page. It was just, you had to have a picture of the prime minister. It was basically getting us to use a keyboard for the first time ever. And uh, mine was Sir Charles Tupper. Mm. Yeah. Nova Scotian. Yeah. No. Deep. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, so. It was the third grade, Grace. Give me a break. It was a long time ago. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's Nova Scotian. Um, he's, I, be, I believe it's the same Charles Tupper. He's the Charles Tupper at uh, Confederation who basically like sold out the Maritime Provinces and oh. was like, oh yeah, we're definitely joining. When yeah. the, everybody else was like, no, we never agreed to that. Yeah. So. What can you do? Charles Tupper. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to replace him, they actually got the Swedish chef guy. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> Sherberber. Is now replacing him. Funny. <laughs> in return, Tupper, who was his close friend, so Fleming is good friends with Tupper. Okay. Um, he granted Fleming a retirement payment of thirty thousand dollars, which was a lot for that period That's of time. A, I'd take that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be done with this podcast. Mark gives me thirty thousand dollars. See ya. He's paying us to retire. He's <laughs> so like, I'm so sick of this shit. <laughs> Please leave and never come back. I'd do it for twenty dollars. Yeah, right. <laughs> No. Uh, no, we love it too oh, much. We love it. But 30,000. <laughs> yeah. That's a number. And then, uh, so Tupper gives him 30 grand and then also promises, which he later revokes. He later takes back the promise. Tupper, Tupper, Tupper. <laughs> of a monopoly on the Pacific Cable Project that Fleming had started to promote. Oh, okay. So in addition to railways, he's super into telegraphs. Oh. And, you know, he's yeah. like, we need a cable. Yeah, we did. <laughs> Shout out to uh, episode six. Marconi. Marconi. <laughs> so Fleming's dismissal only temporarily halted his impact on the Canadian Pacific Railway because the man is just like, I, he's just this like the looming figure behind it the whole time. He's like, yeah. It will be finished. <laughs> Even after it was taken over by a private syndicate in 1880. He bought shares in the Hudson's Bay Company, and in November of 1881, he was appointed resident Canadian director. Two years later, he applied to become director of CPR, and in May of 1884, he was confirmed. So he's just, he's director of the Canadian uh, sector of the Hudson's Bay Company, and right. then he's also director of the Canadian Pacific Railway. Like, he controls so much. He's a busy boy. And we commemorate him as a scientist. Yeah. Like, the man just had monopolies yeah. over these huge corporations. Oh my god, do you think that's why the Monopoly guy kind of looks like him? You think so? I, I'm asking you. I don't know. I just don't think they look that similar. Really? <laughs> well, the Monopoly guy doesn't have a beard, and I'd say that's oh, Fleming's biggest yeah, thing. Yeah, you're right. It's just a mustache. Yeah. You're so right. But maybe you're like, so right. once upon a time. Maybe when he was a little boy, he only could grow a mustache. We should, they should like, we should make Ticket to Ride Canada. Ticket to wow. Ride, but not like screw North, because the North American board is like mostly the U.S. Yeah, it has we should some do a Canadian one. That's yeah. just Canada. Yeah, you can make it like historically accurate. Oh my gosh, 
call up that German dude who makes that game. <laughs> new merch. I new merch. <gasps> That'd be a great T-shirt. Ticket to ride, but it's Sanford Fleming. <laughs> I like that. I'm a fan. So at the request of its president, George Stephen, in 1883, Fleming, accompanied by George Grant, had traveled to the Rockies in British Columbia again to establish a usable pass through the Selkirks. Okay. That following year, Fleming and Donald Alexander Smith, a key figure in both the HBC and the CPR syndicate, formed a Canadian subcommittee of the HBC to examine company land matters often in relation to the railway's interests, a.k.a. pushing indigenous people off their land. Uh, great. Wait, what? That happened in Canada? Oh, my God. Grace, New knowledge I've never heard before. Please listen to our whole podcast if you'd Racism like to know exists? more. <laughs> I'm like that woman, you know, the meme where she's, like, standing in front of, like, all the math on the board, and she just looks so confused. She has it's the like numbers. Every, yeah, yeah, every time. Every time. Yes, there was, is... Racism here in Canada. It's Get woke, people. Get woke. <laughs> Linnea has an alarm that goes off once a day that says, remember to be woke. And she's like, thank you, I just woke up. Whoa. <laughs> in that famous uh, photo where it's the driving in of the last spike, yeah. 1885, Fleming is the towering central figure with a big old top hat oh, yeah, he and sure a big is. old beard. He sure is. And there's a little boy there. Um, and that yeah. little boy's got a fairly unique story, if I remember correctly. <sighs> yeah, I don't yeah. remember. I'm going to look into that. Maybe that could be a little mini so that we yeah, do. Yeah, because I know that there's Who's a story. Who's that boy? Who's that boy? Little boy. Are you doing this to the two yeah. sexy lady? <laughs> I was trying, but then I got scared. <laughs> then I got nervous. I got so nervy, and then you were looking at me. <laughs> so then I did it. Oh, God. Moving oh, no. along. Oh, no. Moving along. <laughs> we're trying not to be problematic. <laughs> trying so hard. <laughs> so... Fleming had every right to hold center stage at this event. Throughout the decade, in addition to keeping his lucrative dictatorships, Fleming remained professionally active. Right. In November of 1885, for instance, he and Robert uh, Reed received the contract for the stonework and piers of the CPR's Lakeland Bridge near Montreal. He's still on that bridge game. Loves the bridges. The card game, but yep. also the bridges construction game. Yeah. There's also a, a really cool band called, I, I guess it's just a guy. It's one of those weird, like, they're called Bridges. They're from Newfoundland. Oh, okay. But, but it's think, just one dude I who's constant? I think it's just one dude. I think <laughs> it's sort of like, uh, what's his name? That guy that Taylor Swift dated, who's like a DJ. You know how that's like a cool oh, thing now? Uh, uh, Calvin Harris. Yes. I think it's kind of like a that scenario. Or like Avicii. Like, I think it's like, but it's like, I think it's one person. But Newfoundland. Yeah. Yeah. Like R.I.P. Avicii. So side by side with steel rails went telegraph poles. Oh. Steam and electricity Fleming maintained were the twin agencies of civilization. Great. Cool. <laughs> but only on land. At sea, there was no such natural combination, and an underwater cable was a much more expensive undertaking. In 1879, in a letter to Frederick Gisborne, then superintendent of the Dominion Telegraph and Signal Service, Fleming broached the idea of linking the Trans-Canada Telegraph System with a cable across the Pacific. Very so Marconi cool. was like, let's connect the Atlantic. But Fleming is like, no, let's go across the fucking Pacific. Bigger. Which is so big. It so is so big. It, like, 
the size of the Pacific is hard for my brain to understand. Like, I flew over it, yeah. and flying over it takes 16 hours. Yeah, it's big body of water. It's so, so big. And they're going to get a piece of string <laughs> that goes all the way across. Well, I mean, it's a little more complex than that. But I don't think it is. For your little small mind, it's just a little string. For my string. little woman brain. <laughs> So little, you can't hold all that information. I can't hold the tools. I can't hold this information <laughs> in my head. <laughs> we're going to take a piece of yarn and we're going to connect it all the way across. But what good will that do? Well, you'll have a can on one end and a can on the other end. And when you speak into one end, you'll be able to hear it on the other side. Exactly. Yeah. It's a lot of nanas doing a lot of knitting to get that piece of yarn all the way across. <laughs> a colony of nanas just knitting. <laughs> knit, 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 knit. So when the project failed to materialize under free enterprise, he sent an unremitting barrage of memoranda to Ottawa. So he's just like sending letter after letter after just letter send after it letter. It's so like, did you get my memo? Yes, Fleming, we got yeah. your freaking memo. We got your 16 memos that you <laughs> sent on Monday. Alone. <laughs> yeah, like he is also just totally funding the postage industry at this point because he's sending so many letters. Well, <laughs> it's he all made on the his stamp, back. you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's all connected. <laughs> and then he also is giving uh, periodic conferences uh, in London until an imperial cable committee was appointed to steer the project. So he just, like, berated people until they were like, okay, Fleming, fine, we'll make a committee. <laughs> right. Opposition from the established private interests that controlled the Atlantic Cable was intense, but mid, by mid-1899, it was clear that the proposal would work because the governments of Australia, Canada, and New Zealand were prepared to support it, even if London turned it down. Ooh. A cable from Vancouver to New Zealand and Australia was completed in 1902. Very cool. It only took like two years. Yeah. That's crazy. It's just yarn, Grace. It's just yarn. <laughs> So now we finally get to the time stuff. Okay. So this is like what he's known for in the Heritage Minute, at least. But he should be known for being a boss. He should be known for being like a crazy enterprising dude. Yeah. Hand in every pot. Yeah. And they're all iron pots. (laughs) (laughs) Stainless steel. Fleming's travels had exposed him to the prevailing confusion in the measurement of time in both North America and Europe, which is what they show in the Heritage Minute, is he's like, there's 35 time zones between Halifax and Toronto. Like, how could a train system ever function here? Yeah. The practice of keeping local time was universal, except in Britain, where the extensive development of railways had led to the adoption of a system of standard time. Okay. So Britain is the only country that has, like, standard time zones at all. Every other country is just like, your town decides what time it is That's there. so dumb. Which I was talking about this with my brother uh, yesterday in a McDonald's in Anaganish. I was just like, it is insane to me that the, like, the philosophical conception of time can change so dramatically over such a short period of time. Where yeah. it's like, time used to be a personal quantity, where it's just like, it's how I regulate my day. Right. So it doesn't really matter what time the like town decides the time is yeah but now just with the invention of trains you see time becomes like a communal concern yeah like we have to collectively not just even in our town but with like towns we'll never visit it's important that we know what time it is in both these places yeah which is insane and now with like social media you regiment your day down to like five minutes it's insane i was actually thinking about this having a little bit of like a Whoa, like, moment the other day. (laughs) No, because I remember, 
I mean, you and I are in a unique age bracket where we didn't grow up. Like, technology wasn't like it is today when we grew up. It kind of yeah. happened as we grew up. Like, people didn't have cell, cell phones, phones when we were kids. Didn't have smartphones didn't especially. Didn't have smartphones especially. Like, there wasn't, like, computers were big, clanky desktop things that yeah. maybe you had, maybe you didn't. Like, if your friend's mom didn't have a cell phone, that wasn't weird. Yeah. And, you know, now it's weird. And I, I was just thinking how everybody kind of set their own time, like on a physical clock. Like, and so your clock could be five minutes faster than the clock at your school. Like people's alarms would go off at different times for different things. And it doesn't seem like that big a deal. But now with smartphones, we're literally all on this set determined timeline. Yeah. And it's just so crazy. It's it's, time is so weird. It's so bizarre. And it like, the thing I always think of is like watching like, me and my mom love to watch, like, Jane Austen yeah. things, Pride and Prejudice, what have you. Don't we all? Yeah. I, I don't read them because I don't read, but I like to watch them. And the the way that the people talk in that movie is just, like, I'll come visit you. And the the timeline for that visit is, like, I could show up on Monday or I could show up on Friday. And it's just kind of, like, that's normal. And that's fine. And that's fine. Yeah. And I think it would be, like, you know... You'd be, we'd be a lot more relaxed. I don't think the human brain is really designed to be happy with the kinds of ways we conceptualize time yes, right now. I would agree. Because your window for expectation and disappointment is so narrow. Yeah. Like, literally one day you could be, like, super happy and the next you can be totally disappointed. Yeah. Purely based on, like, something that, like you've told yourself is a reality. Right. Like you convince yourself of these things. Right. And it's just, it makes like me worried about how anyone could be happy. But, you know. (laughs) Well, it's okay, Grace. As we've said, our lives are in shambles and uh, we might never be happy, but uh, at least we have each other and this podcast. (laughs) But Um, yeah, and the only other comfort I have is that like by studying history, I just know that like every society always thought that their their society was so technologically advanced that it was going to like result in the end of the world. Oh. So like the world's been ending a long time. Okay. You know, everyone always thought it was the end of the world. What have we said, Grace? We didn't start the fire. We didn't start the fire. It wasn't us. <laughs> it wasn't us. We'll try to put it out, but trying real hard. We're just doing our Not best. Not like our parents who just danced around it. <laughs> I didn't start it. Let's throw some more gasoline on there. Burn some tires. We <laughs> <Woo>, party. <laughs> But it wouldn't podcast. We're just doing our best. <laughs> just doing our very We're best. We're just coping. <laughs> oh, God. As the railway network developed in North America, the problems of scheduling and keeping track of trains multiplied, but attempts to reform failed because they were not comprehensive enough. After missing a train while traveling in Ireland in 1876 because a printed schedule listed p.m. instead of a.m., Fleming proposed a single 24-hour clock for the entire world with the 24-hour divisions labeled A through Y, excluding J for some reason, uh, arbitrarily linked to the Greenwich Meridian. The Greenwich Meridian was designated with G. Because Greenwich is zero. Greenwich is zero. That's where time starts. Yeah. He like arbitrarily decide. And you know why? Because he decided. He was just like, fuck it. That's (laughs) zero. And it's labeled with G. And that's like zero on your clock. (laughs) At a meeting of the Canadian Institute in Toronto on February 8th, 1879, Fleming suggested that standard time zones could be used locally, but they were subordinate to his single world time, which he called 
cosmic time. Oh, I love that. <laughs> it's like, guys, we're gonna we have cosmic time, man. <laughs> It's like Fleming, I don't know what you've been doing in he Ireland, like, but he weird. like he like puffs his pipe. <laughs> are you, what are you smoking? Don't worry about it, man. We have cosmic time. We don't have to worry about anything anymore, man. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> Fleming's report was sent to Governor General Lord Lauren Campbell. Lord Lauren Campbell. Lord Lauren Campbell. Who's <laughs> from Kentucky for some reason, uh, who forwarded it to the colonial office with his full support. The same year, another report prepared independently from Fleming's also took a global approach to the problem of standard time zones and received wide circulation. So it's kind of like the telephone where people like were inventing the same thing at the same time because they're yeah. responding to a problem. Right. Same year, some dude is also like, but what if we had cosmic time? <laughs> It was a mind meld, man. (laughs) (laughs) So his name was Cleveland Aves, and he was the chief of the United States Weather Service, was presented to the American Metrological Society, which sought to standardize the measurement of time and whose senior members were Frederick Bernard of Columbia College in New York City and Thomas Eggleston of its School of Mines. Oh, like that Columbia. That Columbia. Cool. So the two schemes were exceptionally similar. Okay. But the authors decided that they were going to, like, join forces instead of fight each other and be like, my system of time is better than yours. Okay. So instead, they, like, joined together to form this really powerful lobby with the support of Eggleston and Bernard, who had strong ties to Washington and international scientific leaders. Okay. Together, they took every opportunity to promote the case for time standards. For Fleming, the chief vehicle became the American Society of Civil Engineers, which was dominated by railway men. His his bread and butter. <laughs> Love those guys. <laughs> it made him chairman of its standing committee on time. <laughs> I just love the rail. It sounds like something out of the Avengers. <laughs> it, 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 this whole thing, these two guys joining forces like together. <laughs> like I've been, I've been feeling like I'm in a superhero movie for the last five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> but it's just a bunch of railway dudes, and they're like, "Yeah, we have a standing committee on time." <laughs> The philosophical notion of the passage of time uh, in 1881, and turned him loose. They're like, "Whoa, go at it! <laughs> Promote cosmic Get time." Get it done. <laughs> He carried out a survey of railway men and scientists about his proposals using the offices of the society, but paying the costs himself. Okay. He planned to use the data to petition Congress to convene a conference, but the railway managers decided to act at once since his data had demonstrated a clear consensus. Okay. On the 18th of November, 1883, which is my brother's birthday. Oh. Not that year, but, you know. That's coming up. Almost, like, 99 years before he was born. Shoot. Or no, that's not true. That's wrong math. I'm bad at math. This is not a math podcast. podcast 18. Shh. 109 before just years before just before just Maybe. We don't know. <laughs> so on November 18th, the Railways of North America adopted a system of one-hour time zones that remains in force to this day. Because of its simplicity. Except in Newfoundland. Except in Newfoundland. Don't get me started. And Atlantic time is not included. So oh. we, we don't get to party. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, they have fewer time zones than us. Not And not just because Newfoundland. Right. Crazy. Crazy. New, for those of you who don't know, Newfoundland is a half hour ahead. Yeah. And well. no one knows why. However, it is clever because their tourism marketing like thing is 
you can slow down when life's a half hour ahead. <laughs> it's like, okay. Okay, we get it. We can't get it. <laughs> You're so weird. <laughs> Thanks, Newfoundland. You just make everything difficult for yeah. everybody, but it's <laughs> fine. It was all for the advertising. Uh, just keep your St. John's and your half hour ahead and just leave us alone. <laughs> just kidding. We love the noobs. Yeah. <laughs> the noobs. <laughs> So because of its simplicity, railway time soon became the standard for the continent. But the need remained for global uniformity. So okay. North America now has standard time. But the globe is still kind of like, yeah. it can be any time, anywhere. We don't fucking know. <laughs> it's the wild west of time. The key players of the Metrological Society and the ASCE were successful in getting Congress to call an international gathering in 1884 to decide on the core question where the prime meridian would be. Begrudgingly, including in the British delegation, Fleming was the only delegate to dispute a position paper. The Congress eventually endorsed his main points, but each country was to make its own decision on adoption. A meantime, based on an existing prime meridian through Greenwich, London, England, with hourly variations according to established time zones, became standard before the end of the century, with most major countries agreeing. Fleming's lifelong faith in knowledge was a Presbyterian heritage. Oh. Allied to it was a commitment to professional service, and the two interests found an outlet in higher education. So he's like, I'm Presbyterian. I also like to be professional. Let's marry those two in higher education. Nice. <laughs> His real opportunity to influence education came when he was drafted in December of 1879 as Chancellor of Queen's College at Kingston. When he was drafted. Drafted, like... <laughs> I'm sorry, you've been conscripted <laughs> as chancellor of universities. Like, oh, you guys, Ooh, you guys are so funny. <laughs> and then they like place a leather jacket on him because it's Queens. Yeah. Those purple jackets. Ugh, I actually, I, I love Kingston. You could pick it up and put it right in Nova Scotia. That's no what you one said. would bat an eye. No one bat an Ugh, eye. I keep reusing my old material. I'm so boring. <laughs> it's okay. We're in a rush. Anyway. We got, you know, we got to like go to the, the, the pool that we know best. Yeah. And for those of you who don't understand why we're in a rush, it's because we actually have to leave here to go and curl. Um, on the team where we met. Where we met. Yeah. We have a we have a curling game tonight. Um, ooh, 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 ooh. Every Tuesday, Thursday. So where we'll either win or we'll win a free beer. So yeah. So uh, or but, tie like we did last week. Yeah. Did we tie last week? No. No, we lost. But we will <laughs> always drink beer. We'll always drink beer. Either we'll yeah. buy it for ourselves or someone else will buy it for us. But uh, regardless, we drink. <laughs> So Fleming's inaugural address in 1880 made a powerful case for putting science at the center of the university's education. More than a figurehead, he worked closely with George Grant, who at the time was its principal, mm. in negotiating provincial support. The School of Mining and Agriculture was subsequently established at Queens in 1893, and the following year, approval was given for a Faculty of Applied Science under Nathan Fellows Dupuis, which also makes sense because this is Dupuis. where Dupuis. <laughs> this is where uh, Jenny Trout started her oh, women's shoot. like medical school. So right, yeah. right, science, right. science, it's all come together. Cool stuff. <laughs> After Grant died in 1902, another one of his struggles to sever the denominational connection between Queens and the Presbyterian Church was continued by others, Fleming among them. This campaign was ultimately successful, and Queens was established as a secular university with a strong base in science and engineering before Fleming died, still as its chancellor in 1915. Aww. Sa sad. Sad. 
Sanford Fleming's strength lay in his systematic use of institutions for his causes. In Britain, the Institution of Civil Engineers of Great Britain, to which he was elected in 1871, and the Royal Colonial Institute helped promote his railway and cable interests, respectively. In Canada, the Canadian Institute was a longtime means of advancing his engineering and scientific interests in matters as diverse as Toronto's Harbour, which he did from 1850 to 55, and Standard Time from 79 to 89. When the Royal Society of Canada was formed in 1882, Fleming was a charter member and its president in and became its president in 1888. Yeah. Uh, it was used in a similar fashion. In the United States, his main base of operation was the ASCE, in which he was active from 1872 to 1899, when he signed off as chairman of its committee on time. <laughs> of course. Committee on time. <laughs> it's still funny. Did he sign off on time? Like... Yes, it can be before nine the deadline. <laughs> oh yeah, but <laughs> so funny. It was, I would love if he was like late all the time. Yeah, me too. <laughs> super tardy. <laughs> in addition to these and other learned bodies, he was at home in Empire Clubs, Board of Trade, and Colonial Conferences. Oh, God, of course he was a Board of Trade man. Of course, and that's the kind of thing. Like he's his ideas are great, but he also just has so many powerful friends that of course his ideas are the ones that like rise to the top. Yeah. He was showered with honors in his lifetime, appointed a CMG in 1877. He was promoted to knighthood in 1897, which is what they show in a minute. He was awarded honorary doctorates from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, Columbia, the University of Toronto, and Queen's. Membership in such bodies as the Royal Society of Canada was an honor in itself. No organization pleased him so much, however, as the short-lived Alpine Club of Canada, which he and George Grant founded with a flourish in 1883 during their second (laughs) expedition across the Rockies. How precious. How precious. (laughs) (laughs) Though Fleming was not a career politician, much of his activity had political consequences. Technology was his domain, and it was through technology he reached for national and international goals. Railway building as a way of uniting the provinces of British North America, professional development in engineering, a telegraph encircling the globe on British territory, and the universal measurement of time. He's usually classified as an engineer or a businessman, but the words that capture his lifetime effort is a promoter. He died in 1915 at the home of his daughter in Halifax. And he's buried in Beechwood Cemetery in Ottawa. And he was survived by three sons and two daughters. What a guy. And that's Sanford Fleming. And we wrapped up right on time. (laughs) (laughs) We're coming in under the wire, folks. (laughs) We are. I liked that. I, uh, yeah, I definitely, like, knew that Heritage Minute. But, and knew, like, probably more about Sir Sanford Fleming than some of the other people in the Heritage Minutes. Yeah. But I didn't know how much other stuff he did. Yeah, I think, like, yeah. he definitely gets remembered for time. But, yeah. like they like it says, it's like he's such a active member of so many sectors right. of Canada's scientific development. But yeah. those scientific developments have huge political consequences. Super cool stuff. Which range from, like, completing the National Railway to, like, the globe deciding yeah. on what time it is like yeah the fact that it is 8 14 here yeah. <laughs> is partially because of Sanford Fleming it's true crazy mind blown mind blown cosmic time <laughs> I do think that's what we should go back to calling it yeah though. Cosmic like it's a time. shame we call it standard time I think we should call it cosmic time I like that way better <laughs> let's start calling it cosmic time <laughs> okay 
Thank you so much again for listening to this episode of the Minute Women podcast. Uh, Grace and I are always so appreciative to have so many listeners. It's still crazy to us. And uh, to have you guys get in touch with us on our social media channels. Uh, we love to hear from you. If you like the episode, if you hated the episode, if there's any questions that you have for us, we, uh, we love to hear it all. So please, if you're not already, follow us on Instagram at Minute Women Podcast. Uh, we're on Facebook at the same name, Minute Women Podcast. And then on Twitter, at the Minute Women. We also have a website, which is www.minutewomenpodcast.ca. It has some really great photos of Grace and I and some information about the two of us, as well as the links to all of the episodes and all of the resources Grace uses to help create each episode. So if you want to check out more information on us, you should start there. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. You can listen to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and to Apple Podcast users especially. We know that you make up the majority of our listenership. Yeah. So it would be wonderful if you guys could leave us a rating, if you could leave us a review. It's the biggest promotion for us, the mythic algorithm of the internet yeah. has decided that that's what is most important. So you, please leave us a review or You rating. are important. And we love to go through them and read them yeah. and it helps us make the show better as yeah. we're kind of next week is our season finale for season two. Which is crazy. So looking forward to season three. We definitely want to see what kind of innovations we can throw out there. So please exactly. let us know what you think. And then of course tell all your friends the word of mouth is the best recommendation. Yeah. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you.